0: Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign from scratch for you to run for your group. This season, we're building our game for the Fallout role-playing game, so if a stroll through a post-apocalyptic United States sounds like your kind of game, this is the show for you. Last week, we started building our campaign, which for those listening in for the first time is being based in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, USA. We got our group introduced to each other, had a couple of encounters, and gave the group an opportunity to scavenge for a little bit of stuff. Now, I've gotten a few inquiries over the past week about last week's episode being shorter than usual, and I have to admit it's because of a mistake I made when I was recording the episode and didn't catch until late in the editing process. By the time I caught it, it was too late to go back and re-record it, so I pulled the entire segment out, and that cost us several minutes of show. It also probably changed the way you ran the opening encounter with the Rad Roaches, so I apologize. But in the interest of providing all of the details, let me drop the revised material in here, and if you haven't run it yet, plug in what I'm about to say just before the battle between the Rad Roaches and the group begins. As the group's working through their getting to know you stuff, you'll want to make sneak checks for the Rad Roaches the group is about to run into. For the record, and I pulled this out when I dropped the entire piece. The number of rad roaches is the total number of your group minus two. The sneak check target number is already determined for the rad roaches and it's a target number of 10. So, behind your screen, make the number of rolls you need to make to see if these boogers get the drop on the group. If they all make their rolls, they all get to go before we even begin the combat round. If even one of them misses, the group will notice them. However, we're going to allow the roaches that did succeed to go before the PCs do, then revert to their initiative order for the second round. The Fallout rules don't necessarily allow for this, but I don't think it's fair for someone or something to succeed on a roll like that only to have all of their efforts shot by one missed roll. Also, this could be something you use one or more of your action points to avoid. Also, I'd note that if you roll a one, that's two successes, and since you only need a single success, you get to put points back into the action pool. I'd also play it out with the group not having a clue until the attack begins. If you lay out hints, you'll put the group on full alert. You want them to be surprised on this because you want to see how they'll respond. Also, moving forward, I'd make sure you've got a list of your group's abilities and skill scores. That way, you can make rolls for them for certain things when you don't want everyone to know what's up. You can ask them to do it out in the open, or give the player or players in question a note and ask them to do it, but then again, when you do that, you lose a little bit of the sense of suspense. Roll them yourself, and then play out the encounters. Now, that second idea can be controversial to some gamers, so if you try it and they don't like it, don't do it anymore. It's not worth the headache for the amount of suspense we're trying to build. Also, those of you who listened last season might be wondering why I didn't do a full recap of the build like I did last season. It's a decision I kicked around a lot before we began this new season, and I've decided to drop the long-winded recaps for two reasons. First, since we're building new stuff each and every week, I don't think it's necessary to do a full recap. A summary like the one I just did should suffice. Besides, if you need a refresher, it's not that big of a thing to go back to the previous week's episode and give it a listen. The other reason is that it gives us more build time, especially in a few weeks when we start getting game recaps in from my group. I realized that when I was doing two recaps of the previous week, one for the build and one for the game, it was sucking up a lot of time, and some of that is time that would be better spent building. We'll still do the recaps for the breakdowns of my game, and that's because the game only runs every other week, so I don't want you to have to go back on episodes just to keep up with what's going on. So. That is a long-winded way of saying I cut stuff to give us more build time. And rather than suck up more of that time running my yap, we build! (laughs) We pick up this week's build with our group, realizing they probably need some sort of base for themselves. Your players' individual backgrounds might give you an indication of where they've been staying, but let's be honest here. One or two characters staying alone in a small abandoned house or shop would most certainly be a target for one of the gangs running around the city at least if they stay in the same place every single night. It can also be argued that some of your group probably just came into the city from somewhere else, and that's something you can work out with your players as you go along, especially once we start expanding out beyond downtown into some of the other areas of the city itself. So, I know I ended last week's show and opened this week's show by saying we were running with the thought the group needed that base of operations, However, over the past week, it also occurred to me that the group might act like the characters do in the various Fallout video games. Not really having a base of operations, but making their way through the area and gathering what they need as they go. So we've got two major ways of handling it, and we'll do this part of the build both ways. It does mean that some of the story materials after that will require a bit of an adjustment, but we'll work that out as we go along. So let's start with the base of operations option. We left the group right across the street from McGurk's Restaurant and Pub, which is an actual location in the St. Louis-Soulard district. Granted, with the 1950s retro-future design, it probably wouldn't look like it does today. I'd argue that with the Irish influence throughout the city, there would still be some sort of Irish pub in the area, so we'll imagine it as an Irish pub but with that 1950s retro American flair. There are four doors to the pub, two on the front about 40 sewer feet apart and two in the back, one on the back patio used for outdoor food and drinks during good weather and another one tucked away for supplies to be brought in. The group will definitely want to figure out a way to deal with three of those four doors since having too much access would definitely be a bad thing. But let's put that aside for a minute and lay out the inside of the building. About a third of the building is the bar area. There's a bar that runs pretty much the length of the southern wall of the room, with the stockroom door at the end of it in the southeast corner. There's a small stage centered up on the eastern wall, and the rest of the floor would have had tables and chairs in it with stools at the bar. Note I said, would have. We'll follow up on that momentarily. The other two-thirds of the space are the restaurant seating, a smallish bar, and the kitchen and kitchen storeroom. For the record, the external storeroom door is on this side of the restaurant. Seating can go however you'd like. Just note that the bar is on the southeast corner of the room, with the door to the patio on the southern wall a foot or so past the end of the bar. When the group enters, it's obvious this place has been picked over. There are pieces of tables and chairs left in here, and the bars have been scavenged for wood as well. A few bottles remain behind them, but they're either empty or broken, so again, nothing here for them to take. If they're willing to take a little time to do an inch-by-inch search, they can scrounge up about five bottle caps. So why would they want to use this as a base of operations? Let's look at the numbers here. You're probably running a group of four or five characters. A group that size is going to want some space to spread out in. A two bedroom apartment with the roof caved in, that's that's not going to do it. This place can be worked out to give everybody a space to sleep in with a little bit of privacy once they get the materials to make that happen. There's a kitchen, so they can at least have a place to cook things that's away from their sleeping areas. And if they want, they can set up an armory or some other sort of storehouse inside. On a separate note, when they get the ability to use them, there's also plenty of room to put crafting tables in here. Again, a complete win-win for the group. But should your group decide they don't want to do this, probably because they feel it's too visible, if they head down the street past the pub, there's a half-standing apartment building about two blocks south of there. They can find a two-bedroom apartment on the second floor that seems to still be in good shape. The issue here is that it appears to have been lived in fairly recently, so there's always the chance that somebody will come back looking for their hidey hole. If they do this, they can find a couple of iguana on a stick and a couple of caps, so there is that. They can all sleep in here, but there's not going to be a lot of privacy, nor would they be able to put crafting tables in here in the future. They'll also realize the first night in there that they have neighbors as they hear rumblings coming from the apartment below them. That being said, so long as they don't confront the beings making the noise, those beings will let them be. So we've got a couple of options here, but since my group's a bit bigger, I'm going to continue with the build assuming they'll take the larger space. Plus, with a couple of robots in the party, they'll need the space. Should your group take the apartment, they'll still need to scavenge for stuff, so what's coming next will work for them as well. The scavenging will need to wait till morning, however, since the time they've taken to scope out the pub took the last of the daylight away, and getting out at night, even in a group the size they've got, is not a wise idea. Pretty much everyone knows that the baddest of the bad like to be out doing their thing after dark, so if you don't have to be out, don't be out. The group should be setting some sort of watch, since they don't have things very well secured at this point, but nothing's going to happen. You can add some suspense to the watchers by having them hear various groups in the area talking about checking out the old pub, but someone in the group will always mention that we've checked that out before, remember? When morning arrives, the group's gonna wanna do some scavenging, especially if they've got a pub to modify. They pretty much have their choices of places to look, but let's be real. If they go too far from their new base before they can secure it, somebody's gonna come by and take it, and that would suck a bit for them since it would wind up being a fight they probably don't want. So, they'll need to hit a spot close enough to the pub with enough possible materials to serve their purpose. Have your group discuss what they're looking to do insofar as modifications. That will determine what materials they're looking for. For the sake of moving along with the build, let's assume they're looking for wood and sheet metal of some sort, since these would be the best materials to use to build dividers. They'll also be looking for metal or steel bars of some type, as I would assume that would be what they'd use to bar up the three doors they want to keep barred up. They might be looking for some type of locking mechanism for the other door, but that's going to be a lot harder to come up with and will be something we'll have to address as part of a deal or something later on. Now, the Soulard area of downtown is full of buildings with warehouses closer to the riverfront. So there's a huge selection of places to go searching for supplies within a 15 to 20 minute walk from the pub. Have the group make endurance plus survival checks before they take off. Difficulty is a two. Success means they've heard that folks just don't seem to scavenge the warehouses, but the reasons vary from person to person. Some say they get the heebie-jeebies, while others claim there's something there. Either way, those are in an area that should be ripe for the pickings. We'll lay that out in a minute, but there's another option, should the group decide they don't like what they're hearing about the warehouses. Option two is that there are so many old apartment buildings on the blocks immediately surrounding the pub that one would think they should be able to find enough materials to make their plans a reality. Regardless of which choice they make, from a game perspective, they're going to need 10 units of whichever materials they choose for their dividers and 20 units of steel or metal bars to block the doors. If they're looking for materials for bedding, that's going to be 5 units of cloth for each group member. So they'll need to do a lot of scavenging to get the materials they'll need to accomplish the goal. If and when they ask why so much, lay it out like this. They're taking what is basically a blank canvas and adding the things in that they think they need to make it the way they want it. They might decide to change their ideas and may even decide that cloth dividers would work better than wood or steel. It would certainly take fewer units as they'll only need 15 units of cloth to accomplish their goal, though the final result won't be quite as private. So here's how this needs to work out and I'll leave the narration of it up to your own style. The group will need to search through the various rubbles for about five hours in order to get enough units of usable materials to do the repairs they're wanting to do. The rules typically state they'd need to break down useless items to harvest the material, but in this case I don't think we need to make the rolls. My reasoning is this, we're talking about sheets of metal, or wooden boards, or scraps and sheets of cloth. If you're going through the rubble of buildings, especially the number they'll have to go through to get everything they need. You should, in theory anyway, be able to find enough materials to get the job done that the most you'd have to do is pull some nails or screws to loosen the material from whatever it was attached to. And that's not a role in my book. Just saying. I also don't want to make it a challenge zero role because I don't want the group to pick up action points for doing this action. One thing to add here, should the group choose to head for the warehouses, they do get the heebie-jeebies while they're in there. I mean, no matter how quick they work or where they go, they get the feeling they're being watched. They're not, at least not by anything living. But it's not something that comes into play here or at this time, so there's nothing they can do about it except either deal with it or leave. Again, play this up however works best for your style. I should also note that the five hours of scavenging is just for scavenging. Add in another hour to an hour and a half to haul the various materials back to the pub, since there's no way they're gonna be able to haul everything back in one round. Now, I know my group, and I'm sure you've probably got folks in your group who are the same way. They want some specifics as to what they're gonna scavenge to find the materials. So let's break some of this down, shall we? If they're looking for sheet metal, there will be abandoned cars on the streets. It'll take some work to wrangle the skin off the frames, but that will be one of the better ways to get sheet metal. There will also be trucks in the warehouses, so that would mean bigger sheets. For beams, that's the easy one. Whether it's an apartment building or a warehouse, it has beams. The difference is that the apartment buildings most likely have wooden beams, though they can also be metal if you so choose, while the warehouses definitely use steel beams. Cloth can come from multiple sources in this case, but one of the first that should come to mind goes back to those cars and trucks we just mentioned. They've got seats, and those seats are made of some sort of cloth material. Whether they're straight-up cloth, leather, or pleather, they're still cloth. So pillage some seats, you've got some material. Overall, the my basic math is this. One car seat equals two units of cloth. One truck bench seat will give you five units. A car or truck door gives you one unit of sheet metal, while the sides of a container truck are 10 units each. Each beam pulled out is two units if it's whole and one if it's half. You can use that math to make adjustments as you see fit, and I can't refer you to the book on this because the book isn't really clear on it as their rules are directed more towards salvaging materials from existing products. So, we're already going off book in this game. Yay. Once they get the materials back to the pub, they've got things to set up. This is where they're going to need to figure out how they're going to put things into place to get the look they're wanting. You can always add the search for hammers and nails to the search list, and a hammer is one unit while nails would be five nails per unit. They can also decide on rope, which they might find, but might need to make. Let's figure a unit of cloth per three feet of rope so that it's going to be strong enough to do the job. After that, it's just about taking the time to work it out. And insofar as locks for the other door. We'll get to that in a minute. Besides, after all that work, the group will need to rest. We're going to be nice in this part of the adventure and not hold them to the rules for eating and drinking, but they're going to have to rest, whether they want to or not. So we'll pause here for a minute so we can tie both of our directions together. So what do we do if the group decides on the walking the earth plan rather than a base of operations? What changes here is that the group will need to start looking for a place to dig in about an hour before sunset every evening so they can find a spot large enough for the entire group. Make it a point, especially the first few nights of pointing out when you believe the sun is starting to get low enough that they need to think about these things. We don't want major encounters to be a part of this. Give them areas they can rest in that are small, but would still allow all of the group members to lay down on a sheet or blanket and be able to get somewhat comfortable. You can also have them find spots that have obviously been used by others before, and those will have stained, nasty looking mattresses on the floor, though there will never be enough for each member of the group to have their own. How they choose to handle that is up to them, but they got to figure that one out. Use the old apartment idea from the beginning of the searching for a base of operations plan for the first night and move the scenario we're getting to momentarily to the next day instead of two days later like it would be for the other group. In other words, if the group is building a base of operations, there'll be a day behind the other option. It's just the way it works, but it's nothing serious. It just means you'll need to have some sort of a calendar out and be noting what has happened when. Bringing our two options back together into a single stream, we get to the next scenario. One way or the other, the group needs to start considering scavenging for food and drinkable water. Obviously, if you've got a ghoul in your party, they're okay since they suffer no issues with taking in radiation-affected foods and beverages. For the rest of the group, though, that would be bad. Now, they could straight up hunt for the food if they want. Unfortunately for them, rad roaches will be pretty much the only thing they can find. But if they cook them, for whatever reason, they'll be okay to eat. Technically, this is now referred to as grilled radroach, but it's okay for eating. According to the text in the book, and food consumables are covered on pages 149 to 159, it tastes really bad, especially where you know where the meat comes from. Again, though, it fills the belly, and that's the point. The water is going to be a completely different issue. Beverages are covered on pages 160 to 163, so you can check what I'm saying here against what the book says. Based on the group's location in the city, getting to a pure source of water isn't going to be easy or quick, so they're left with getting water from wherever they can find it and then either drinking it as is and taking the radiation damage, since it's all going to be dirty water, or boiling it for about five minutes, which according to the rules would technically purify it. Again, I know I was lousy at science in both high school and college, but I don't see how boiling water gets the radiation out of it. But this is a game, so we'll go with the rules here. They can get water, because if nothing else, they can hike the four blocks or so to the Mississippi River and get themselves some. They'll need to be careful, or they'll pick up a point of radiation damage, each just trying to get it out of there. But they can get more than enough to sustain them for a few days. Once it's boiled, of course. At some point during their search, they'll come across the ruins of the Missouri Athletic Club, which isn't too far south from the starting point of the pub. As they make their way past it, most likely headed towards the river to get water, a voice will call out to them. It's older and has the sound of a voice that's been through hell and back. You boys looking to make a few caps? If they ignore it, he calls out again. You trying to say y'all are so cap rich you don't need more? Look, I don't think this will have to be done twice, but if a second call doesn't get it, think of something that might get your group motivated and have the old man call him out. He's trying to hire him, not get beaten up by him, so be careful of what you say. Otherwise, have at it until they either accept the offer or just flat out move away. And they can certainly choose to just walk away. I mean, we're not going to try to force them to do anything they don't want to do. If they ignore this, then toss in a rad roach attack when they're headed to wherever they're going and make it one roach per group member. And no, this isn't punishment for not following what we've written. The goal is to try to get them the same amount of experience they get for completing the task the old man's going to send them on. Best way to do that's with a rad roach combat. Plus, they get meat from it. So, win-win? Anyway, getting back to the old man at the athletic club. When the group turns to see who the person calling them out is, they see an older African-American gentleman sitting on the stoop leading into what's left of the historic location. Some of the characters have probably passed by here a time or two and haven't thought anything of it, since the roof caved in and most of the top floor seems to be gone. This gentleman, though, seems to have turned it into his home. So, good on him, right? He's dressed in an old work shirt with a white tank top underneath. His cargo pants might have been military olive at one time, but that's pretty hard to tell. They've been patched over time with pieces from who knows what, and they now more resemble a patchwork quilt than a pair of pants. His boots, though, seem to have seen the worst of it, as the group is pretty sure they can see his feet through holes in the sides. Now, he does seem to be doing good, though, all things considered. He appears to be fairly clean, which means he's probably had a bath in the past week or so. He appears to be fairly well fed though not fat by any means it's just pretty apparent he doesn't have any bones sticking out from lack of nutrition he'll nod at the group when they get within about five feet that that's far enough gentlemen now of course alter this if you've got female characters in the party he introduces himself as jeb waters he won't share too much about himself other than the fact that this is his home and he and his granddaughter set it up a couple months back The girls scavenge and he works the deals with various groups around the city to get caps, food, water, and you know. The reason he needs help is that the girls went out to scavenge yesterday and they haven't come back. That's highly unusual for them since they know they need to be back under the roof by the time the sun goes down. He'd hoped they'd be back when he got up this morning, but they weren't. So he's been sitting here looking for somebody to help him, especially since he's in no shape to go tracking them down himself. He's willing to pay 40 caps if the group can find the girls and get them to come back. Now, if the group decides to negotiate, he won't go any higher than 80 caps. I'm basing 80 on 10 per player plus a few extra. And since I've got seven players, that's 11 per player and three extra. If you've got four, kick it up to 50 with 60 maybe being the highest he'll go. Don't feel the need to go 80. If they want to walk away, let them go. Of course, before they really negotiate, they're going to want information. So let's get to it. Jeb's granddaughters are Amelia and Zoe. They're 21-year-old twins, and their mother was his daughter. He doesn't want to go into what happened to Esther, that's his daughter, but it's obvious that even saying her name makes him emotional. That's why he's made it his mission to set the girls up to be in the best possible place he can get them in before he ultimately passes. They don't tend to go much further than 10 blocks or so north or south of the club, and they certainly don't cross the highway to scavenge. They don't need to make checks. He's definitely worried about Amelia and Zoe, and from the pained shifting he does while he's sitting on the stoop, plus what they observed when they approached, it's obvious that while he could probably protect himself well inside the house, going out on a search and rescue mission ain't going to be his thing. So, With the information presented, let's get the roles for the negotiation going because you know your group is going to want to get as many caps as possible. The role is Charisma plus Barter. Now, this isn't a role versus role barter, so perks to give advantages aren't going to be applied here. Sorry. It's a difficulty too because while Jeb's going to give them caps, this is them trying to get more out of him. So they're going to have to work at it. This is what you'd call more of a haggle. If they succeed, that's where the numbers I was talking about a moment ago come into play. If they fail, they get just what he offered. If there's a complication, eh, we'll get to that later on. And one person can be the negotiator and one person can assist them using the assist rules under major actions. Short form on that is that someone assisting can roll one die to see if they pick up a success. If they do and the person on the lead gets at least one success, they can add their success to it. However, if the lead gets no successes, then the assist role doesn't get added. They might also want to try to get a portion of the caps up front. I'd say that Jeb won't give them any, since as he'll say, I don't know you, how do I know you won't take the caps and run? However, in the interest of being fair, let's give him a shot. Charisma plus barter, difficulty four, same rules as above. If they succeed, he will give them no more than half the caps up front. Now, if the group picked up a complication during the last roll, crank the difficulty for this up to five because Jeb's not really wanting to make deals anymore. So once the deal's done, the group can head out to see what they can find. Since all Jeb could give them was about a 20 block radius around the club, they've got a lot of searching to do. And finding two women around here isn't going to be easy. Plus, and the group will probably think of this, if a Raider group or something got a hold of them, getting them back from that won't be easy either. To lay out what the options are, the Anheuser-Busch Brewery, which in our game is the nuca cola factory, is roughly 10 blocks south of the club. I think it's actually fewer than that, but let's go with it for our purposes. Interstate 55, which is the highway Jeb was talking about, is roughly 10 to 12 blocks to the west of their location, and the interstate is actually depressed in that area, so bridges, in reality anyway, cross the interstate in multiple locations around here, so you can move further west through the city. In the fallout world, however, the bridge has got bombed, so you've got to head down the hill, across the highway, and back up the hill to head west, and the open ground of the interstate is a perfect spot for folks to pick you off from above if they so choose. The river is less than 10 blocks from the club, and 10 blocks north, well, it will occur to the group that they've heard of a few groups of punks running around in that area that like to intimidate smaller groups. That's going to be the start point, so they're probably going to want to head that way. 10 blocks on foot isn't exceptionally hard to do unless you're really out of shape. I mean, I'm a 49-year-old fat guy and I can handle a 10-block walk. Doesn't mean I'm not going to be sucking wind when I'm done, but I can walk it. For our characters who just happen to be very used to this kind of thing, they could do it in 20 minutes or so. However, I'm sure they're going to be keeping an eye out in all directions for signs of Amelia and Zoe, so we'll double the time and say 40 minutes. At that point, they come to an intersection with a red rocket gas station on one corner, a fatties on another, and crumbling apartment buildings on the other two. They see signs of movement coming from the red rocket, and, even more telling, the garage door is shut. But there seems to be a ton of light emanating from it. And there's a figure they notice just inside the open front door of the station. The group might be thinking about moving along, but just as they go to do that, they hear a woman's scream coming from the station. It sounds like a scream of panic and pain, so it should draw their attention. The figure in the door is a raider, and there are three more in the garage. The stats for raiders are on page 386. As the group approaches the station, the one in the doorway retreats to the garage, so it will be four in place when the group finally manages to pick the lock on that door, the inside one. For the record, that test is perception plus lockpick difficulty two. Let's set the scene. As the group enters the station, they can tell the place has been ransacked, probably multiple times. They don't get a chance to search at this point because the screaming continues from inside the garage itself. Once they get the lock picked, the door swings open and it all hits the fan. The four raiders are positioned with three in corners, two in the corners facing the door and one on the corner to their right on the other side of a metal table with an old tool chest setting on it. The fourth is crouched behind two females who are on their knees and obviously tied up. They're bleeding badly, and at first glance, it's obvious they've been beaten and cut. The three in the corners open fire immediately while the fourth waits. Should someone decide to shoot that fourth guy, a complication on their roll results in one of the females being hit. Roll the hit location and credit the amount of damage the raider takes to that location. The ladies only have five health points each, so this could end badly. If the fourth guy winds up being the last guy left, he surrenders and can be questioned. Should they have someone to question, we're not going to force them to make roles. After all, superior firepower is a rather intimidating force, so he'll answer questions. The whole story is this. The group noticed the ladies out scavenging, and they took them so they could take their loot. Their plan was to maybe sell them to somebody looking for slaves, but they've been having trouble finding buyers. Insofar as the torture, he admits they were doing it for fun. The group can do whatever they choose to do with any survivors. Also, if one of the ladies was shot, they're going to have some work to do. The items they'd picked up are no longer there, and there's nothing of value other than what's on the raider bodies to scavenge. However, both ladies should be alive so they can escort them back to their grandfather. They found Amelia and Zoe, and they report they were trying to find items to sell for caps so they and their grandfather could leave the area when they were accosted and taken by the raiders. They also point out that there were six of them. They overheard the other two saying they were taking the stuff they'd found to trade and that was a couple hours ago. The ladies really want to get out of there, so the group should head to their house with them. Jeb's waiting for him when they get there and he pays up, like promised. He also thanks them profusely for doing the job, noting that you're the real deal. A lot of other people would have just let him go. They can chat more if they want and I'll leave that to you. When the conversation is done, we're done for today. However, it's time for the group to level up. That means that each character's maximum hit points go up by one, they get one rank to increase a skill, and they get a new perk. So, have everyone do their deal and wrap the session if you choose to. Either way, we're wrapping our build for today. Next week, we'll dive back into the build and see where we head next. In the meanwhile, I'd appreciate it if you check out our other podcast, Roleplaying History. This week, we continue our 101 set of episodes with GM101. We'll break down the responsibilities of a GM and point out mistakes to avoid. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted property of Modiphius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are used on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out more excellent gaming products, check out the Modiphius website, M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net. The music we use on this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's campaign build along is a production of bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash bad GM prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, it's Bad GM Productions. You can email us badgmproductions at gmail.com and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week we continue to build the adventure for our merry band of adventurers, but that's next week, friends. Until then, may you all have a happy new year. I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis. I'll see you at the game table.